Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Abatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. I'm very excited to be back today talking about Kagemusha, the Shadow Warrior from 1980. So I have a question. Uh, say I'm Kurosawa, it's the late 70s, and I'm running into two problems. One, I don't have very much money because my films tend to be expensive. And two, I'm no longer popular in Japan. Why do I make the most expensive Japanese movie of all time, as far as I can tell? <laughs> what the fuck was going on? This movie was insane. It looked like it cost a billion dollars, and it was very Japanese. This movie co- actually only cost $10 million. <laughs> you're, you're, you're fucking with me? <laughs> <What the hell? laughs> Listen, $10 million in Japan is pretty different than $10 million in America. So, yes, this this is yeah the most expensive Japanese film of all time at the time and was one of the highest grossing films of 1980 in Japan, also released in the United States. Yeah, I think I actually watched the United States version. Yes, and we'll get into some of the differences in that because I wasn't sure if you were aware of that. I didn't know until the end when it was like, by the way, you're watching the American version. I was like, oh, uh, fine. So, after Dersu Yuzala... It actually was a modest hit. You know, it played in Russia, played in Japan. It made money, but it didn't make enough money. It didn't deliver the box office smash hit of Kurosawa's yesteryear. Everyone was like, okay, we never doubted that Kurosawa could make movies, but he hasn't made anything that will inspire us to get a bunch of people into the theater. And apparently he had sworn off working with the Russians because they made a bunch of edits unauthorized to his cut that released in, I think, Italy. I'm not surprised that the Russians made unauthorized cuts. I'm surprised that it was for the Italian version, but all right. He doesn't have much to really do anymore. So he went back to an old hobby of his, which was painting. Kurosawa had worked on the Kagemusha script for like a decade, and he had all these images in his head for it, and was so sad that he felt like they would never actually get to see the light of day that he started painting hundreds of storyboards. And I encourage everybody here to look up those paintings because they are magnificent. There are many reasons that this film in particular is super, super calculated. Every detail of this was thought out of in advance, He kind of just did this for years, and this is really something that kept him afloat. Obviously, we talked about his mental health in the last episode, and now this is giving him something to do to just keep going and pass the time. Kind of like I have with this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But then, in 1977, came the release of Star Wars. God bless. George Lucas, this is how he used his clout. He had the ability to do anything. After making one of the most successful movies ever, obviously he was going to go and start working on The Empire Strikes Back. But he also became aware that Kurosawa, his idol, was having these financial difficulties. And he couldn't believe it. He was in shock. He's the best filmmaker ever. How is this happening? So he and Francis Ford Coppola, who had you know, made The Godfather a couple years before that, they actually managed to facilitate conversations between 20th Century Fox, whom had screwed over Kurosawa in the past, and Toho, who usually distributed Kurosawa's movies. And so they came to a deal and were able to both finance the film because he couldn't secure that enormous $10 million budget in Japan. Fox got the international distribution rights to, you know, play it in America. I believe George Lucas himself even offered to cover the cost if it was too problematic. Wow. What a beautiful thing, you know, that they felt so indebted to Kurosawa's influence, and Kurosawa's career has spanned so much time that he's now able to see, like, the seeds of his influence sprout. 
and manifest itself as other filmmakers and then have them now in turn help him. You know, it's a circle of life. Yeah, that's that's really nice, actually. I do think it's very cool that Coppola and Lucas stepped in to guarantee that this insane film would get made. Yeah, truly. And a very different period piece than we're used to. Not even one that was like, oh, we're going to do another Seven Samurai that's going to be full of action and humor. That's not this movie. Yeah, it almost seemed like it was supposed to be that, but it wasn't. Not in a bad way. Just like, it like hinted at that every once in a while, but that wasn't really the whole tone of the film. And it's interesting that you pick that up. There is a lot of truth behind that, because Kurosawa did envision this to be more comedic when he wrote it. They originally cast Shintaro Katsu, the actor behind Zatoichi, and he came to set with a whole television crew to film his performance and like basically get in Kurosawa's way because he said, I have to study my performance and be able to see it and watch it. And Kurosawa was like, I'm the director, and if your performance is bad, I will tell you. Yeah. <laughs> like, And so whatever happened, Katsu either quit or was fired on the first day of filming. Amazing. That's super funny. There were so many problems with this movie. This was like the most disaster-ridden Kurosawa set. Typhoons would come and destroy things and delay filming that costs like tens of thousands of dollars a day. And a lot of trouble finding locations because there's a lot of castles in this movie. And now all of a sudden there's like power lines or railroads, lots of stuff like that. They eventually cast Tatsuya Nakadai. Oh, we'll just go back to the regular guy. <laughs> He's, you know, kind of busy at this time. He's a very successful, popular actor, so he has other commitments. So now it's like, okay, well, while we wait for Nakadai, we're going to keep doing more preparation and finding new people. They got like 5,000 extras for this movie. Yeah, you could see them. There were some shots that felt like they had 5,000 people. <laughs> I would wager to call this the largest film that Kurosawa ever makes. Oh, yeah, hands down. It's way bigger than Throne of Blood or Hidden Fortress. And, like, those are big. <laughs> Largest so far, certainly. We'll have to reevaluate when we watch Ron next week, because Ron has enormous production value, too. Just all the time in this movie, I was like, how are there so many fucking people here? This is insane. He, like, hired an army to make this movie. Yeah, and they were, like, doing, like, military exercises and drills and stuff. They're in real samurai armor. I feel like the main reason this movie was made was to show war. It was, like, to do period accuracy. A little spoiler, I'm not sure how I feel about the film as a whole. If, if anything, what I got out of it was this movie was made for the production design, for the war, for having an extremely period-accurate 15th century or 16th century Japanese war film. Yeah, it really, actually, something about this movie that I find very interesting is the extreme restraint that he shows with violence. He really never shows any. It's all about the horror and aftermath of violence. Yeah, which is pretty classic Kurosawa. What we have here is really a constructed tragedy. It's very cold. It ends and there's no hope. There's no happy ending that's even remotely possible for this movie. Yeah, I really didn't know where it was going to go. Of all possibilities, that this ending made the most sense. It was like two hours in, I was like, where could this possibly be going? <laughs> like, nothing good is happening. Yeah, and this is a film that is rooted in Japanese history. Shingen Takeda is one of the most famous warlords this is adapted from history, but definitely with artistic liberties, because it is believed that Shingen used doubles, among other Japanese leaders, and the final battle in this movie, the Battle of Nagashino, is one of the most important and famous battles in Japanese history. I guess that explains a little bit more about why he did it, because it actually more or less happened. I think this movie would probably make more sense to us if we were more familiar with Japanese history. Yeah, that's totally fair. I, I don't want to hold that against the movie. I was just like, why is this happening? Why did he make this? Also, this is a Sengoku period movie. That means that it's set in the 16th century. 
and a lot of the samurai films that we think of, they're from the 17th and 18th century, and that's when the Tokugawa shogunate are really making the rules. We see the Tokugawa in this movie, they will eventually win this warring states period. As we said as well, there are two cuts of the movie because of the international distribution rights that are very unique to this movie that isn't really the case with the other ones. The Japanese one is really only available if you buy the Criterion disc. It isn't really available to stream anywhere that I could find. I actually would be curious to see the American cut because there's definitely extraneous scenes in this movie. Unfortunately, the main thing that is cut is, to be fair, kind of unnecessary scenes, but they are the scenes that contain Takashi Shimura. Oh, yeah, okay, I was like, where was he? I didn't see him in the entire movie. Yeah, so Takashi Shimura shows up in like two or three scenes as a doctor who is called to investigate and check the Kagemusha. He does it and he's fooled and then the villain is still not convinced. It ultimately changes nothing, it's really not necessary, it was just... An excuse to have Takashi Shimura show up. I love him. I miss him. That's a... Okay, well, I'm sure I miss that. You really hardly do get to see him. It's only a few minutes. It's not like there's even any, like, meta line about him being there. It was the last movie Takashi Shimura ever did, actually, in his enormous career of movies. Much like Susumu Fujita and Toshiro Mifune, we must now say goodbye to the true OG Kurosawa king, Takashi Shimura. Oh my god. Absolute king. King of kings. Love Takashi Shimura. One of the most underappreciated and important actors in film history. Absolutely. He was so good in so many of these movies. He was in Sanchiro Sugata. He was in the most movies of anybody. Yeah, he was like there before Toshiro Mifune and thereafter. They uh, should release the Japanese cut and streaming because that's fucked up. I'll show you those scenes someday. But other than that, the main cuts are really just trimming the beginning and end of some scenes to make them cut faster, which makes sense because a lot of them, it just lingers. And this movie is a little bit too long. We really should get into it because there's so much of everything. In Sengoku period Japan, a nameless criminal is spared execution due to his identical resemblance to Lord Shingen, daimyo of the Takeda clan. He is trained in the art of being a double by Shingen's younger brother, Nabukado, who fulfills the same role. Shingen is soon shot by a sniper during the siege of a Takagawa clan castle. His army retreats and he dies in the secret company of his generals. The Kagimusha assumes the role of Shingen for the following three years at the daimyo's request to keep his death a secret. He gradually accepts his new responsibilities and identity, much to the dismay of Shingen's son, Katsuyori. Rumors surrounding Shingen's supposed death spark further tensions with the rival Takagawa and Oda clans, leading to skirmishes throughout the land. After a year and a half of successful deception and comfort in the role, the Kagimusha's secret is revealed and he is relieved of duty. Despite this, he follows the Takeda clan's army to the Battle of Nagashino. Now under the command of the ill-prepared and arrogant Katsuyori, the clan is slaughtered. The Kagemusha, once nothing but a petty thief, takes up arms against the Oda clan and is shot dead. F. <laughs> that feels like a lot of plot in retrospect, though I do remember watching it and being two hours and 20 minutes in and thinking, how is this movie so long? Like, not much is happening. Stuff is happening, but like, the plot is pretty simple. There's a general, he dies, he gets replaced by a double, and the double just kind of does general stuff until he gets found out. And then they all die. They're, they're three hours, but not in a bad way. I was just, I was confused. It, certainly, there is definitely points where you're like, I don't really know what exactly the overall thing is. It's really a movie about trying to keep up illusion versus reality. Another one that completely epitomizes it. Uh, yeah, I could tell that that was the main thing going on here was illusion versus reality. That and the fact that it was an obscenely accurate period piece were like the two main things that I felt like were driving this film from a Kurosawa perspective. 
much how I felt about Dersu Uzala, where it was like so much of what we're seeing is kind of unnecessary, but it's probably trying to just be accurate to the book. I feel like a lot of that is also the case with really trying to be thorough and accurate to history as much as possible, despite the fact that there are some major differences. Yeah, I was watching, I was like, this is just happening because this is something that he knew would have happened. Some of those battle scenes were insanely long. 30 minutes, it felt like, of just people just marching around, doing various things, using various unusual tools that I didn't know anything about. The main adjective I would use to describe this movie is thorough. Every single facet of the Kagemusha's job is shown so detailed, so well. You really do feel like you are living in this kingdom. I feel like he does create a very lived-in environment. Yeah, I would say so. And I personally come to really love a lot of the characters that are in this movie. Oh, I do too, yeah. There are some weird tonal things where it does feel like remnants of the funny parts of the movie. Because it is inherently a funny premise, you know? Like, it could be done funny. It was done funny in an episode of The Clone Wars where Jar Jar played this role. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's something. Episode's called Shadow Warrior. Makes sense. I'll say listener so you don't feel bad. I thought that that was two different people. I did not realize that it was just Tetsuya Nakadai the entire time. And you know what? That's a testament to how believably he pulled this off over 40 years ago. Yeah, I was going to say, like, wow, that second actor is really good at pretending to be the first actor. <laughs> but it was just a scene not going to time. So the opening shot of this movie is one of the only times that we get to see Shingen and the Kagemusha in the same frame. And it is Tatsuya Nakadai in both roles. Oh, I didn't know that. Somehow the picture is split and they are able to do it. I don't know exactly how it's done. But the opening shot of this movie is incredible. It's one shot. It's over six minutes. It's the longest single take in any Kurosawa movie, which I think really adds to how real it feels because it would be much easier to have the same actor play two different roles if you kept cutting in between him playing both roles. But to show it so wide and just let it play out in front of us, it's remarkable. It was like basically a cold opening to the movie because that happens and then it's over and then it's Kagemusha and then now you're watching like the movie. It really does set up everything. It shows us Shingen and the Kagemusha are more similar than they think. They both see themselves as criminals, but to a different degree from one another. He's like, I'm a petty thief, but you've pillaged entire lands and you killed plenty of people. He's like, yeah, I'm a scoundrel. We're not so different, you and I. To his side is Nobukado, who is his double, and also does manage to look very similar to him. There are some times where the film will cut between one of them to the other and you like don't realize it for like a half second. You just think that you cut to like a different angle of the same guy and then you're like, oh, that's not him. That actor playing Nobukado, Tsumoto Yamazaki is the one from High and Low, the one from Red Beard. Oh, they both do have weird faces, which I guess is how they pull off being so similar. I'm amazed like because he doesn't look much like Tatsuya Nakadai when you just see them normally. But then the way that they have the beard and the hair... They really make it look convincing. It's very, very incredible. And I really like Nobukado as a character. My other favorite part of this opening shot, I guess I'm basically just doing everything I would normally do at the end of the show because, spoiler, it is definitely my favorite shot in the movie. We get this shadow behind Shingen off to the left of him in between him and his double. And I actually, listeners, have studied this movie very thoroughly, and I actually have a published article about the use of shadows in this movie and how they aptly reflect the film's legacy, and you can read it on Filmed in Ether, which specializes in Asian cinema. I'll link to it in the show description. Can't believe you're doing a shameless plug on your own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much because it does literalize the theme of the movie about shadows, what they mean, 
but it's also his impending death sitting right behind him. It follows his every move. It is his brother as well. We're seeing it like right in between the two of them. Yeah, his brother refers to himself as his shadow. It's a shadow that is so present and clear. No one else casts a shadow in this scene. It's only him. There's nothing on the wall for anybody else. Later on, we'll see that shadow used in different ways to really solidify. And I think that it applies to Shingen as a whole because he really casts a shadow over his entire kingdom. And the way that he, as like a narcissistic leader, condemns his people to follow him into death by dictating the way that he does is super impactful. I think it's the reason that a lot of this movie is set at night. I think it's the reason that a lot of the battles are done in twilight or in darkness. It is just an overall all-encompassing darkness to this movie because of this one man. Interesting. That makes sense. And I think that adds more to it than I got out of it on my like, you know, initial watch. We get through that first scene. It's unclear how much time passes, but I don't think it's much because I think that the double is still fairly untrained when Shingen is shot. There's a few times where it will tell us the year. I admit there are parts of this movie that can be a little difficult to keep track of. We spend a lot of time with the Takeda clan's enemies, and sometimes going back to them is kind of confusing. There's certainly some extraneous stuff with them. Yeah, he sets them up at the beginning, and then eventually he'll just cut to them randomly. We actually aren't with the Kagemusha for quite a while. We start to understand the dynamics of the Takeda clan and the war that they're fighting against the Tokugawa and the Oda clans. Shingen wants to advance on Kyoto and dreams of seeing his crest emblazoned on the city. And they're sieging a Tokugawa castle, and there's this flute that plays every night. Shingen eventually wants to hear it because he thinks that they're going to take the castle soon, and the flute guy's probably going to get killed. So he's like, I want to I hear how good this guy is before we kill them all. And then he is shot off screen, and then we get a cool scene of the sniper that shot him reenacting how he did it with a small pine tree. Yeah, that was really cool. First, I was like, why is this? Why, what's going on? Why is this thing on? But it was, it was a cool scene, especially when he hits the tree right in the dot, not even looking. There's a few moments like that where it does feel like this really isn't necessary, but it's really cool. It's really thorough, but it's also Kurosawa using dialogue or other actions to show something that happened without actually showing it happen, which I think is really interesting. Kind of like the end of The Bad Sleep Well, when the guy reenacts how Nishi was killed. Here's how Shingen was shot, but we're not actually going to show you him getting shot. We're going to show a much more impressive shot of him sniping this tiny tree. I thought that worked really well. That was really cool. He hits the tree, which is where the guy was. So it's literally just this, like when he gets shot, you don't see it. And I remember thinking like, oh, like I kind of don't really get what's going on, like what happened there or whatever. But then, you know, you do learn from that scene. Yeah, because Shingen's death has to be kept a huge secret because with uh, Warlord dead in the Warring States period, that just means that the other clans are going to move in and decimate them. So they need to keep up this illusion. That, importantly, leads to making sure that Shingen's son, Katsuyori, is not appointed the head of the clan yet. Much to his sugar. Oh, is that why his grandson is supposed to be it? I, well, they kind of, they give multiple explanations. But uh, Shingen has a son who, like, is a competent warrior and is old enough. It's kind of a, a bitch, but... And then he has a son, and his son is, like, next in line. The way that it works, and it, it is a little bit complicated, Katsuyori is the son of Shingen and the daughter of a warlord that he conquered. And so, technically, he is, like, of mixed bloodline, and therefore he cannot inherit the Takeda throne or something like that. But that would mean his son is also a mixed bloodline, I guess just like a little bit less. 
Yeah, like, I think he's the Lord. He could do whatever he wants, but the compromise that they come with is that we're gonna appoint Takemaru, his son, to be the heir to the throne, but if Shingen dies, then Katsuyori gets to be, like, heir apparent until his son comes of age. What you really need to know is that Katsuyori is angry at his dad because he didn't feel like he loved him, and really importantly, did not prepare him to be a leader. Ultimately, it's Nobukado that's doing everything because he's also royalty. Nobukado is Shingen's brother, but he has no claim to the throne. He's so loyal to his brother, there's a great scene later where he just says, like, he doesn't really have an identity, he is just his brother's shadow, and so once his brother died and stopped casting a shadow, he became nothing. He died with him. The Kagemusha becomes a shadow of a shadow. There's a, a great line where he just says, the shadow of a man cannot stand up and walk on its own. It doesn't exist without him. And that's the whole case with the Takeda clan is the Takeda does not exist without Shingen. And so it's going to try to stand on its own without him, but ultimately it's just going to implode. He didn't care. He only wanted to rule. Yeah, he had no intention of dying ever. The last thing he says is, there's Kyoto, take it for me. And he dies. They carry his palaquin away. The troops start retreating and they don't really understand why. Yeah, they're like, we're winning. Nobukado shows up to like quell their questions to keep them subservient and I love the way that he does it too because there's that beautiful shot of the soldiers marching and they're you know a lot of times soldiers in this movie are portrayed as silhouettes they are shadow warriors they are fighting for a dead man and they really are marked they're condemned they pass the sunset the sun's setting on their clan and they're casting down shadows onto other people and that's exactly what the Takeda clan itself is doing to them. And they don't know it. They're just being kept in the dark. There's a lot of great stuff in the movie like that. It's really, like I said, very thorough. It's so well thought out. And because Kurosawa had so much more time in pre-production than he usually did, think back to his golden period. He was making a movie every year or at most every two years. And then now he's had like another five years and he was working on it at least five years prior. All this stuff is super calculated and thought out. Now the Kagemusha is revealed. He comes, and all of the generals of Shingen are totally shocked when he takes off the mask, and he looks identical because he's the same actor. He gets shot, no one knows what's happened to him. All the competing warlords think he's basically, is he dying? We know his arm's broken. And all of a sudden, he's leading his troops, and he looks great. He looks like he's having the time of his life. He falls off a horse right after, but no one notices that. There's these spies, and they're like... I don't know, like, I, I don't think that this is Shingen. Like, we, we're pretty sure he uses doubles, but then, like, the closer they get, they're just like, that's him. That looks exactly like him. That's gotta be him. They do everything to prove that it's not him. And they're right, it isn't. But they are convinced otherwise. That scene of the Kagemusha in the parade, I don't know why, but for some reason, it is one of my favorite Kurosawa scenes in general. I think because of the music, which I love to death in this movie. I love the soundtrack. Donald Ritchie hates it for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know what's wrong with him that day. I liked it. The Kagemusha lets himself get carried away with his power and having fun. And he's just, you know, riding the horse all slowly. And then he just slaps it and starts going. And like all the generals are terrified. And they just start like chasing after him. <laughs> all his troops are cheering. They don't realize that by the Kagemusha doing that, he convinces the spies because they're like, Yep, no doubt about it. That's definitely Shinken. Yep, that wouldn't be some fuck-ass thief that no one knows. No one would have that much confidence. I love the one general of the fire garrison. He's always dressed in, like, an orange armor. He's kind of funny, but very stern and serious. Like, he has a really cool look to him. Yeah, he does have a cool, like, he has that, like, wild white walrus mustache. So I was following the whole mountain, fire, forest, wind thing. 
But I didn't realize that like those generals actually represented one of them each. The green one was forest, the red one was fire, until they start calling each other like, well, fire and forest looks like we're going to die. <laughs> like, I agree, wind. I was like, oh, that explains why everything is the way it is. Makes sense that the green forest is infantry, the red is cavalry. It's kind of a little weird that the wind and fire are both cavalry units. One of the warlords says the Takeda are all about cavalry. That makes sense, therefore, that they are the Kurosawa stars. Yeah, of course he loves them. I definitely got some Song of the Horse flashbacks, especially at the end. A lot of slow-mo horse footage. So yeah, like, the Kagemusha has to take over for Shinjin. He doesn't know that Shingen is dead. That's another huge thing, is that they try to keep him in the dark, just as they're trying to do with everyone else. They're trying to pull another scheme so that the Kagemusha doesn't know. But because he's a thief, eventually one day he tries to break into this pot. Yeah, there's this giant, beautiful jar. He wants to steal the presumed treasure inside. Yeah, and opens it up, and it's the pickled body of himself, essentially. Shingen. It's horrifying. It's literally like the scene from Drunken Angel. Yeah. Where he finds himself in a casket, or from Stars Episode 5. <laughs> uh, yeah, there he is. <laughs> His dead body reflected back to him. Oh, it, was, it looked gross, but it was cool. I would say my most significant problem with this movie, aside from the fact that occasionally it can be hard to follow or just has some extraneous stuff, is really that the Kagemusha's motivations are unclear. Yeah. He really, I think by design, isn't really a character because he is designed to be taken over by Shingen. He spends the majority of the runtime being someone else. I think this is just a problem that Kurosawa's running into in this later stage of his career because, like, Arsniev really wasn't a character on his own, and I thought that was a major problem of Dersu Yuzala. Here, the Kagemusha really is just like, I don't understand why he wants to do this other than the fact that they might kill him. Yeah, he says he like he seems to feel some fealty to Shingen, which a lot of people do, kind of unreasonably. But he's like, I want to do this for him. And all Shingen really did was, I guess, save him from being executed by him. Yes, but he also doesn't seem very appreciative of it at the time. He's not on board until Shingen gets thrown to the lake. He kind of realizes, I can be the king now. But it doesn't come from a selfish place in the Kagemusha. It's like, I want to do something for him. Nobukado says later, one meeting with our lord and his heart was swayed. But I wasn't sure if that was, like, just his perspective on it, or if that was what the movie was actually trying to tell us was his thing. I really thought the Kagemusha taking on, like, the role of the lord and, like, overdoing his responsibilities and making decisions was going to be more of the plot, and it's really not. You know, he keeps doing little things, like, saying certain things that he shouldn't, but he really follows his orders until he tries to ride the horse and gets his ass kicked, and he gets kicked out. That seems like so obviously what the tension of the film would be, but then it's not, and that's kind of absent. You're just looking at this guy doing this thing for seemingly like, I don't know, for whatever reason. I mean, I do think that a lot of this movie is infused with an undercurrent of tension. I get very tense in a lot of these scenes at the ways that this could be discovered because it seems so easy to break. It's like such a hard illusion to pull off, and the fact that they are continuously able to do it is really impressive. Because you know that this guy's kind of a little bit dumb, Yeah. you don't know like how able he'll be in certain scenarios. Sometimes something will happen and it'll cut to like the generals or it'll cut to Nobukado and their eyes are just bucking out because they're like, oh my god, like the whole illusion is about to be shattered, what are we going to do? But then the Kagemusha manages to be sly. He already looks like the Lord and then he starts to act like the Lord, copy his mannerisms, copy his signature, right side of his mustache stroke. But then he really starts to think like him. He starts to really, in a sense, become this guy. Once Katsuyori tries to force his hand eventually and force him to make a decision to show that he would be inept, he really does give the right answer and acts the way that the actual Shingen would have. Yes, that's true. But also, at that point, he is just like doing what his fake brother is telling him to do. 
which is like, you know, let the generals decide. And he, I guess he makes a decision there, but he, he just picks what the brother is telling him to do. And he gets really cocky about it. At the end, he's like, don't move when no one moves. He never does anything other than what he's supposed to do. And that like bothered me. I just like, it never went anywhere. He does everything he's supposed to do perfectly. He becomes the Lord and then he fucks up by doing something stupid. I would certainly not say that he does everything perfectly. I think there's a lot of times where he does slip up, but manages to fix it. I don't think there's ever the perception that what they're doing is easily accomplished. I think they really struggle in a lot of places. No, yeah, I don't think it's easily accomplished. I just like Shingen's defining characteristic is that he was kind of mad with power and narcissistic and would do these things that no one else would do because he's Shingen. Then he never does that. He never like oversteps his boundaries in this narcissistic way. He never like steps out of line. He sometimes fucks up like with the maids. He's like, I'm an imposter. And then he fixes it. I definitely take that as intentional. That was some reverse psychology. That's another one of my favorite scenes in this movie, too, is he's meeting with Shingen's harem of women. That's like a whole different level of deception is that they know him very intimately. What I love in that scene is that now the Kagemusha is casting Shingen's shadow, but it's on the other side of him. It's not on screen left, it's on screen right. And that's just the way that Shingen himself has crossed over. And now he's casting the shadow and there's a great moment where when he finally stands up after he successfully deceives them by admitting to being an imposter, turning it all around because they think he's drunk and they just think he's very funny. He starts to walk towards a candle and his shadow just grows and grows and goes over the walls and the ceiling and... It's a spectacular image that says everything about the movie and about what Shingen is doing to his kingdom. That's exactly what he's done, is it's just the more that he does, the more that that darkness overtakes everything. I feel like if the Kagemusha didn't fuck up by trying to ride the horse, then the clan wouldn't have rid off to die. That was all his son's fault. No, uh, absolutely. That's absolutely true, and it's because of Shingen. The point of this movie I take is that, again, it is built as a tragedy, and it's people trying to avoid the inevitable. Their fates are sealed the moment that Shingen is dead, and they're still trying to let this dead man rule them. Because he said, don't go anywhere, have everyone come back and defend the kingdom, keep up this illusion for three years. He's given them all these instructions and then left, and they're so loyal to him because he's built his circle that way that they're enabling their own destruction because he has willed it. Katsuyori has enough of it, and because Shingen didn't treat Katsuyori right, Eventually, Katsuyori is allowed to lead his own kingdom to destruction. Yeah, but that's still Katsuyori's fault. My thing is that if they did everything that Shingen told them to do, it would have worked and they would have been fine. So it almost like validates him in the first place. Because if the guy just didn't ride the horse and fall off, he would have just kept defending the kingdom. They wouldn't have all died. Nothing would have happened and it would have been fine. It's not Shingen's fault that the guy rode the horse and fucked up the whole plan. It is Shingen's fault that like his son is an idiot who's going to ride them to suicide, but that wouldn't have happened if they just followed Shingen's orders, which they were trying to do until the guy gets cocky. They're following his orders that are incredibly difficult to follow. They only manage to do it for half the time. They get through a year and a half, and then it ends because the Kagemusha tries to ride a horse that only Shingen himself could ride, and he feels like, I am Shingen now, I can ride this, and then it doesn't work, because in reality, he is not. But who knows what else could have happened to reveal their secret. It's almost broken so many times, and they were only halfway through when it finally fell, and they were like, honestly, we can't believe that it lasted as long as it did. But I don't blame Shingen for what went wrong, even though it was crazy. Because I don't blame him, it then kind of ruins him like being the death knell of the cult. Because actually, his plan would have worked, and it would have been fine, even though it was stupid, and he didn't need to do it. I just There was some motivation missing at the center of the film that bothered me. Well, that I agree with. 
what are they going to do next? Like, what's their plan for after this? Because they don't even really think about that. They're so concerned with keeping Shingen's plan going that they don't actually prepare for what would come next. So then when the plan finally fails, Katsuyori is thrust into the position and he has no idea what he's doing. It just like, I guess in terms of pacing and the overall arc of the film, you know, suddenly he fucks up and then they all die. And then there's just the end. And I'm like, well, I feel like I didn't learn anything. I don't understand anything new at the end. It just, I guess, yeah, like you were saying, it's the inevitable, but it didn't feel like it went anywhere for me. Okay. Agree to disagree. I get very moved. I think because it's a story of a man who's an outsider actually finding a place and finding care in his fake family and moving from holding his own self-interest to actually trying to protect people that he's come to love, even though they love him in a way that isn't real. You know, like Throne of Blood, the whole movie is told to you right in the beginning, you know, this is going to be a tragedy and this is the folly of man and he's going to fall no matter what. And that's exactly how I approach this movie is there's no way that this is going to work. Effective tragedy is when you know it's going to happen, but you don't want it to. Yeah, but I didn't know it was a tragedy. So then when it was a tragedy, I was like, oh, well, shit, all right. (laughs) Like, I feel like it just didn't set itself up well enough. I don't totally blame you for that, because again, it is so different from so much that Kurosawa has given us. I guess if you know the story anyway, because it's a famous historical story, then maybe you know what's going to happen. Most Kurosawa films don't necessarily have happy endings. They have, like, kind of emotionally rewarding endings, which this, like, didn't. I agree that if I had known it was a tragedy, I would have felt better about it happening. But the fact that I didn't, and then it goes this way, and I'm like, oh, well, fuck, okay. This is a movie that I think improves on repeat watchings more than other ones because it's so detailed. It does feel so overwhelming that you need to go back and get more. So much of it is keeping up different deceptions. There's some really nice scenes with the Kagemusha and Takamaru, Shingen's grandson. He's the real one that the Kagemusha comes to love. The kid almost exposes the Kagemusha right off the bat. In the very beginning, he's like, that's not him. That's not my grandpa. And everyone's just like, uh. War changes a man, Takamaru. Yeah, he's uh, he's very sick, so he'll be totally different in every way. Something that's cool, too, is like, you can trick anybody. You know, like, you can trick a child. You can trick the enemy. They're even tricking their own people. But the one thing they couldn't trick was a horse, which is a very Kurosawa thing right there. Yeah, that was cool. Very Kurosawa to have the horse be the entire hinge of the movie. <laughs> which, personally, because I don't like horses, I'm like, okay. Takamaru asks him, like, oh, why are you called the mountain? And then he's like, he, <laughs> he kind of so just waits <laughs> for the other guy to talk because he's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this seems so funny. Takamaru asks, why are you called the mountain? And he, like, doesn't really know. So then his guard explains the entire story. Then he's like, oh, I see. That's why I am called the mountain. I was like, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't say, oh, yeah, that's why. I think he catches himself and says, so you see, that's why I'm called the mountain. But I laughed like really hard when he did that. The mountain is so appropriate to for Shingen. That's a structure that casts a shadow at any hour of the day. It's such a towering presence that there's always darkness under it in some form, no matter where the sun is. Shingen is so cool that I wish we could see him more. He's like, we see him in the beginning a bit, and by when the Kagemusha starts taking over, I was like, I don't know enough about Shingen to know if he's doing a good job or not. That is true, we don't see him too, too much. The only people that really ever get to spend time with the Lord is his closest people, and every time the Kagemusha does something, his people are like, oh my god, he's perfect. But I wanted to spend time with the Lord. There's a moment where he is, like, adjusting his posture or whatever, or, like, trying to get the gesture right, 
And then the people that actually know that he's fake are watching him and they start perking up because it's like all of a sudden their lord like teleported from the dead in front of them. And it's like a really impactful scene. The guys like start crying or whatever. Yeah, his two pages. Yeah, they start crying because there's their lord who they love. It really just looks like he's right there because it's Surya Nakadai. <laughs> and then he like does something else wrong and they're like, what are you doing? You look like shit. Katsuyori starts to accelerate the downfall of the clan by engaging in battles that he's not supposed to. There are two enemy warlords. Ieyasu Tokugawa and Nobubanga Oda. Those are two rival warlords that are working together to an extent. They have a treaty with one another, but there are other clans as well. Nomonaga becomes suspicious that Shinjin has actually died, so they start attacking the kingdom. And that's what, like, sets this whole plot in motion. They get attacked and they're waiting for a response. The Kagimusha very wisely says we shouldn't do anything, we should wait. But Katsuyori loses his shit and starts attacking them back. And that's, like, what is the beginning of the end. They're like, well, now Katsuyori is going to this fight, so we have to go, but we won't actually fight unless we're attacked. Like, we're just gonna go and sit behind him. His son has his own castle... He has one of the smaller ones. Along the lake that Shingen winds up being buried in secretly in a giant jar. Something I really want to highlight, especially in the battle scenes, is Kurosawa's use of color. I love how much red he puts in the skies. Like, the Takeda world itself is covered in blood. It's been stained. It's set up very well in that second scene right after the credits where one single guy in brown runs through the entire army of all the different colors. Some people are dead, so they're covered in blood. Some people aren't, but everyone has their own color and their own thing, and it's amazing. It's really, really cool. All different factions, like the cinematography in this movie is outstanding. He has two cinematographers here. Originally, he wanted to get the guy who did Rashomon and Yojimbo, and he, I believe, started having trouble with his eyes because of some diabetic thing. Oh. But these other guys, I believe, were people that he worked with a lot. I can't imagine it looking much better. One of the most beautiful movies Kurosawa ever made. There is a crazy dream sequence. It is another one of those scenes that's kind of extraneous, but it's so cool. I think it justifies itself. Bursting out of the clay pot in which he was buried comes Shingen himself, looking like green pickled like he was in the jar. And he looks like he's about to attack the Kagimusha. He's dressed in peasant garb now. He's no longer the king. And all around them is paint. Much the same way that some of the backgrounds were done in Dodeskaden. It really shows that Kurosawa was willing to use color and, like, make it pretty obvious that it was artificial. Well, yeah, well, in a dream sequence, he can do whatever he wants. And that's why it totally works, because it's like, oh, I can tell that, like, they're in a studio and that's a painted wall in it. But the patterns around it are just so interesting, and there's all different colors being shot in through light. They're standing on top of, like, these hills of snow or sand or something. Kind of actually looks like one scene in Stalker, the famous scene. Every inch of the room is filled with, like, color and reds and blues. Water is purple. Yeah, so there's a large battle where it is, again, like playing up the darkness and disorienting nature of it, where we really never see the enemies, but suddenly there'll be gunshots and people will just fall. They'll be sending different platoons in different directions. The audience is certainly made to be as disoriented as they were, because it's a little bit confusing what's going on, but it's supposed to be. It's like pitch black out. You just see troops moving one way. They're like, oh, we're being attacked over here. Oh, no, we're not. We're being attacked over there. Oh, some guy got shot. And it just goes on for a very long time like that. Oh, there's a brief thing right before, which is really cool when they light the castle on fire and the sky lights up blue and red. That looks awesome. It really is keeping the perspective of this movie locked with the Kagemusha because he's so scared. It's one thing to be like, okay, I just got to like kind of improv my way through a meeting. If he starts to slip up or something, he's the lord of the kingdom. He can do what he wants and he can just leave. Yeah, yeah. You know, like if he really needed to do something. But now he's like actively in harm's way. 
if he got caught, the worst that would happen was basically that he'd get fired. He probably wouldn't be killed because the people really do start to actually respect him. They don't respect him at first because he's just a petty thief, but he really does earn their grace. And they're like, we really appreciate how hard he's working. Like, this is an impossible job. We can't believe he's doing it. Now he's just sitting on his stool, waiting and watching and trying to look confident, and it's not working. People are just getting shot right next to him and falling over, and no one's moving. Literally, they form, like, a circle around him, and then, like, four of them die immediately. And there were, like, two of them were, like, his pages, which were probably close personal friends at that point. The one guy says, you know, those guys took bullets for you. I'm sure he must be thinking, why? <laughs> I'm not him. I'm not Shingen, but they're taking bullets for the idea of Shingen. That's some real illusion versus reality shit. That's so sad. Some of these people that are dying for someone that they think is alive but isn't, and it's all so pointless. Some of them know that that's not him, and they it's just that's what they have to do anyway. And I like the contrast with that too, because Katsuyori is pacing back and forth. The real Shingen, quote unquote, is just sitting there solid as a mountain. We talk about how shitty Katsuyori is, but I do definitely feel a degree of sympathy for this kid. His father's dead, and now he has to call a man who looks exactly the same as him, his dad, and take orders from him. It's degrading, yeah. That's a major battle. That's the thing that really emboldens the Kagemusha to feel like, I just led my army into battle, and we won. Even though he didn't really do anything, he just kind of sat there. But he did what he needed to do, which is exactly what Shingen would have done. And that's when he finally tries to ride the horse, and it doesn't work, and he gets excommunicated. Very classic Kurosawa scene, pouring rain. He's playing with his grandson. His brother's a little mad because why aren't the guards with him? Like, you should be watching him. The maids notice, wait, he doesn't have a scar. This is, he's fake. And then there's 50 people right there who are like, oh shit. I noticed, so the game's up. I thought the scar would be like a little bit bigger of a deal. When they have that scene with the doctor that I guess you didn't see then, he doesn't check it, but he does ask about it. They cut away from that scene pretty early. We don't see like the full examination. But he is like, oh, how's your wound? And Nobukado just says, uh, the only thing left from that wound is the tale to tell. Saying like, oh yeah, that very obvious wound he had, uh, it's gone, it healed. I find it weird that it works. Okay, that would have helped. They set up in the very first shot where he's like, oh, this cold really hurts my old wound. And then because that scene is missing from the American cut, it isn't mentioned again ever until that scene where he gets found out. And I was like, uh, oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> duh. <laughs> like it really had to pull back from two hours and 20 minutes ago. I was surprised they didn't stab him in the shoulder and give him a wound. Time passes, and they finally hold the official funeral for Shingen, and Katsuyori is the de facto leader, and he's like, we're going to battle, and they're all like, can we not? And he's like, no, we're doing it. What Nobunaga says is the mountain's moved. It's over. A really cool, crazy scene of leading their troops on the beach, and this rainbow appears over them. Kurosawa likes to use rainbows in his color films. He used it in Dersu Uzala. I feel like there was probably one in Dodeska then. There's a really famous one in Dreams. I love how, though, in this movie, he's using a rainbow not as a symbol of beauty, but of fear. They're like, don't you see this? Your father is buried in that lake, and he is sending you a warning telling you to not do this because it will destroy your clan. The guy's like, well, that's your interpretation. I just think it's a rainbow. (laughs) The final battle is the Battle of Nagashino. It's against the Oda clan, who have set up all these barricades to put their muskets on. Tactically, like, like you've played one real-time strategy game, and you know, like, there's no strategic way of doing this. They're mostly relying on spears. There's a few shots of Nobukado in that scene, and he is so angry. <laughs> He's just looking at Katsuyori like, you are an idiot. Why did you bring us here? We're all gonna die. If this wasn't a historical battle, I would kind of also be like, why is this happening? This is insane, crazy, suicidal. 
then they just march to their instant death and make no progress at all. A very different type of end battle than Kurosawa's ever shown us, because it's really that he doesn't show us. All we are really seeing are the barrels of muskets and people's reactions. Wave after wave of these guys go, and then you just hear gunshots over and over, and everyone looks horrified. And they do that for three waves, and then they finally show you, in slow-mo with the music playing, a sea of bodies and horses and blood everywhere. No one even made it to the enemy. Some people got a little close, but no one made it. How could they ever have? It was doomed from the start. In reality, there was a real battle, but yeah, the Takeda really were obliterated. I will say, I was like, one, this is really cool the way you're doing it. Everyone's rushing in, but you don't see them die, you just see the shots. Also, I was like, there's probably no way to make the horses do what you need them to do. There's <laughs> probably no way to get a thousand horses to die at once, <laughs> simultaneously. Uh, wait until next week. I would love to be wrong. I'm excited to see it. <laughs> they send in the wind, the forest, which is the infantry, and the fire, the cavalry, and they all just die. And then we get a really cool end scene with the horses, which I'm pretty sure are on Tranquilizer. This is a scene where I got really worried the actors were going to get fucking stomped in the face by a horse. <laughs> it's so dangerous. Eventually, at one point, it cuts back, and the stools that Katsuyori and Nobukata were in are just turned over because they fled with the few people they have left. The mountains moved. The Kage Musha has followed them to this battle because he is desperate to see them to help them in some way. It was his life's purpose, and now he's left with nothing. And the Kage Musha grabs a spear and just starts running towards the enemy. He charges towards them, gets shot 80 times, and then walks really far away in the other direction to get to the stream. He collapses in the water, much as he did when he was begging to be able to play the role. He sees the Takeda flag, he starts reaching for it, and collapses. And that is another thing that just says everything. It's just like, this was unattainable. This was never possible for him to really lead the Takeda. He was only tricked into thinking that it was. And his body just floats past it, and they play the end credits over that banner under the water. Yeah, which is really cool. Then, yeah, we're getting the end credits again, like we did with Dersu. So that is Kagemusha, the Shadow Warrior, brought to you by George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> I talked about my favorite shot a little bit, so I won't really repeat myself too much. But again, I really do think that that first frame is so cool and I think sets up everything. I love that he's on his dais above everybody and he's underneath his clan's emblem. I really think that everything you need to know about the movie is in that first frame, and it's so technically different than anything Kurosawa's ever done by having the same actor play two different roles in the same frame uninterrupted. It's really remarkable filmmaking. That frame, when I first saw this movie so many years ago, this was the second Kurosawa movie I ever saw. Uh, it was on Netflix, and it was so strange that it was on Netflix. I was way too young to see this movie. Coming back to it as an adult, I really got it a lot more, but that first frame was forever emblazed in my mind because I thought it was so spectacular. My scene we also talked about, my frame is just one frame from the dream sequence. The ghost of Shingen, I guess, walking towards him and him standing there, paralyzed. He's like blue rimlet on one side and then he's red in the back. They're standing on the purple and pink sands and then off in the distance there's that sky which is literally like almost ablaze. You know it's a studio, but it just looks amazing. Like, every inch of this frame is filled with color. It's very, very cool. The whole sequence is wonderful. It is so cool how something so artificial, like, you can just buy it. What's your final ranking? I vacillated back and forth the entire time I was watching between a 7 and 8. And I think I will settle on 8. The production design is obviously amazing. I loved it. And I really liked all the characters. It was just, like, something weird about the plot not knowing that it was a tragedy and then feeling kind of disappointed when none of it mattered. 
there wasn't some like humanist thing at the like I felt from a lot of the other movies but it was still very very good obviously it was like an amazing impressive film and I would love to see it again and probably get more out of it but I'll, I'll say eight I definitely think that you should see it again I've seen it a couple times and every single time I get so much more out of it and I understand it so much better I love how dense it is and really does feel like we're teleported through history. I was oscillating between an 8 and a 9, and ultimately I landed on 8 as well. It's a high 8 for me. I really, really love this movie, but in watching it, it definitely has flaws. I think the main flaw is the Kagemusha himself being unclear with what he actually wants, and he's just kind of going through it, and the movie can just be confusing. I'm really into it, I'm really enjoying it, but I'm ready for some things to move on way before they do. You watched a cut that's like 25 minutes shorter than the one I did. Yeah, and I want to see your version. I've really spent a lot of time mining this movie because I've always been intrigued by it. It's a lot different than a lot of Kurosawa's movies, and that's both a good and bad thing. Some parts of it, it's much better for being different, and some parts of it, it's like, maybe if it was a little bit more similar, this would hit better. So ultimately, I'm landing at a high 8. I think it's really, really good, but definitely imperfect. And it really is a precursor to our movie next week. I would say Kurosawa's most popular film from his late stage of his career. This is the one that I know literally nothing about, and I can't wait to see it. Oh man, Ron. It is big. I have no idea how we can keep getting away with it, but he'll find a way and he'll do it. He'll do it. This will be his adaptation of King Lear. So this is our third and final Shakespeare adaptation. Going to be a lot to talk about on that show, too. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week for Ron. Ron.